Greetings, everyone. It is now time for Mark Safe, tales of your very favorite and most beloved man-made disasters. On Mark Safe, we discuss events and details that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Please listen responsibly. And now, here with your hosts, Brianne and Melanie, this is Mark Safe. Hey, Brienne. Hello again. How are you? I'm a little slap happy. How are you? A little slap happy, too. It's late. Mm-hmm. It is 1 a.m. here. Uh, yeah, so 12 here. Mm-hmm. Did you just, like, do the math based on what time it is here instead of just looking at your clock? No, I looked at the clock. Okay. I did. It sounded like you did some math there. Good thing it's digital. <laughs> <laughs> Or then there would be a lot of dead air on that one. Well, the audio guy can take it out. (laughs) The audio guy is giving me the finger. Uh, Oh, this is this is an unprofessional work environment. It's hostile. It's hostile. I tell you, (laughs) we're just doing the best we can. This is a toxic work environment. You better call OSHA. I yeah, don't give him an idea. He'll call OSHA on you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love it. We can call it on each other, and they'll they'll come out and say what's the issue, and find out the issue, and they will they won't find it funny. And then we'll have to make a podcast episode about it because it will be a disaster. It will. We can interview the OSHA person. <laughs> Speaking of interviews, do you have one today? I do. I do have an interview. It's- Our very first. I'm really excited about this one. But not our very last. So, I'm going to talk about the ants. Like bugs? No. <laughs> like the aunts, the ants. Oh, the, the aunts. The okay. mama's sisters. Okay. Or dad's sisters. How many of them? There's two. Um, okay. So, the story I'm going to tell you about, I was initially laying in bed, and I'm in a probably the most sacred text thread ever and it's with the ants and it's my aunt carolyn my aunt beta and i will note that i'm saying it like that because it's an alphabetical order not because i favor one over the other oh my is there some uh ant competition here that you need to clarify that yeah it's it's been going on my whole life and that sounds uh, pretty cutthroat it is uh they're constantly fighting over who is the better ant and because yeah, i don't know that it would i don't know that it would occur to me to clarify the uh alphabet alphabetic situation oh it gets nasty like think of like just how you would fight with your sibling and then just throw like a niece or nephew into the mix it's oh it gets no. pretty i love it though like secretly i love it i love that they fight over me I have to tell you, it's not a secret anymore. You just said it on a podcast. Well, <laughs> I didn't say who I love more. Ooh. Because Ooh. I love them equally. Oh, I was going to ask if we're going to put that in the bonus content and make your aunts pay. Oh, we should. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> we'll just like string them along like, you know, the carrot in front of the horse. Uh-huh. Make them think they're really going to find out. 
make them join our Patreon, and then it'll just be a five-second clip of you saying that you love them equally. And then I'll say, suckers! (laughs) Maybe we should remove those. That might be, we might be onto an idea here. (laughs) We are marketing geniuses. Oh, they're so awesome. So yeah, I was texting my aunts. Um, They were actually asking me about when we are launching the podcast. They're super excited about it. So hi, aunts. Are your aunts podcast people? Uh, they're going to be. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've got a few people who are about to be. They may not know it yet. Oh, they're super excited. So I was just, we were talking about it and they wanted to know what we were covering and just out of nowhere. I mean, we have been talking about this for a while, but I was just like, you know, have you been in, have you ever been in a disaster? And clearly, you know, the people that are most close to me, knowing that I'm co-hosting a podcast about disasters you would think would have told me a long time ago that they were in a disaster Mm -hmm. they didn't i feel pretty confident that no one in my family is holding out any stories like this except for my mom and greg luganis the diver she does have stories about that but i mean i guess maybe i should ask him i firmly believe that everybody has been through a disaster either they have blocked it out they have forgot they want to keep it to themselves. They don't think it's Everybody important. Does. I don't. I don't know. Every. I. Th- I, I think, think this is statistically questionable. Well, I'm an optimist. Know. Is that optimistic? <laughs> I'm morbidly optimistic. Morbidly optimistic. Let's put that on our list of could have been alternate podcast <laughs> names. So yeah, um, I was really freaking surprised when. My sweet Aunt Veda said, yes, she had been in a disaster. She experienced a B-47 bomber crashing in her town. Oh, my God. Mm. Did she see it? Yep. Like crashing in her town or like crashing Uh, next to her or what happened? Well, I have some audio of her telling you all about it. I need to know more from your sweet Aunt Veda. All right. Here she is. Hi, my name is Veda Sanders Harris. Growing up in the late 50s and 60s was a really scary time for um, young children. And in 1960, I was 14 years old, and I attended Plassey Heights Junior High. Well, on March the 31st, I was sleeping early in the morning. It was, I I would guess, around 6 o'clock. My mom was outside hanging up clothes. And all of a sudden, there was this massive explosion. It was just unbelievable. It shook the windows of the house, um, and it just terrified us. And, you know, being kids, we jumped up screaming. My mom came running in the house, and she was screaming, the Russians have bombed us. We wore dog tags with our name, our address, um, our religion on it. It had a P if you were Protestant, a C if you were Catholic, and a J if you were of the, of the um, Jewish faith. And so that was to identify us, our mangled bodies, I guess you would say, if we were bombed. So that's what we thought had happened. What had really happened was a B-47 from the Little Rock Air Force Base had crashed. And mom ran in the house get, gathering us kids 
and made us go outside because we thought the house, I guess, was going to explode. And we looked up in the air, and we could see fragments of the plane coming down, and uh, we saw a man in a, a parachute. And so Mom ran back in the house, and the neighbors came over and were telling us that it was a plane that exploded. And Mom turned on the radio, and, and that's what had happened. Um, we didn't know a lot about it, but we knew that one had exploded. Well, I don't remember, I don't recall if I knew that there was a body on my schoolyard when I went to school or if we found out after we got to school. I do know that when I got to Pulaski Heights uh, Junior High that there were a lot of police everywhere. And I remember having to show identification to that I was a student there. So I guess I showed my dog tag because uh, we were still wearing those at this time. Mother wouldn't let us take them off. Right outside my school, um, I remember thinking, you know, how can this happen? What happened? And maybe did the Russians bomb that plane? I don't know. We had gone through duck and cover drills where they would uh, set off an alarm or the teacher would yell out, and we would have to get under our desk and, and crouch down and cover up our heads. So, you know, being 14 years old, I thought maybe the Russians had bombed that plane. I, I didn't know. But um, anyway, they they closed all the blinds on that side of the school so that the students couldn't see the body and the activities that were going on. Of course, I was a library helper one period. I think it was probably my second period. And they had not removed the body yet. And I remember our, the, te- the head librarian saying, do not look out the windows. You're not allowed to look out the windows. And the shades were drawn. And um, so I, you know, the curiosity of me, when she turned her back and got busy, of course, I looked out, peeked out the shade and was able to see the body. And, you know, I don't know why I had to look, but it, it scared me even more. Um, it, the best I can remember, they had him covered with a tarp. Um, and then he was removed later in the day. But there was a lot of speculation going on about what had happened. There was a very very smart young man in my class, and he knew right away that it was a B-47 that had blown up. Um, of course, we didn't find out later until it was just, a, I guess, a pilot error or something happened um, that exploded. I do remember that it was the talk of everywhere. A lot, uh, Several people died. A lot of people were injured. And um, it was close to Arkansas Children's Hospital where it crashed. And so I, after I started working there, I heard many accounts of that from the older nurses that worked there. But after um, things settled down a little bit, my dad took us on a drive, and we drove by to see where the plane had crashed. And I, I could not fathom that anything was that big, the hole that it had created. Um, it was way into the ground, and it was huge. And there was debris scattered everywhere. Um, debris went all over Little Rock. Actually, my younger sister, Pat, found a piece on the way to school. And there was a lot of looting of that and a lot of things that made the headlines for many days. But I remember that it just... It scarred me for a long time. Well, what do you think? Holy, it's bananas. first of all, I think I love your Aunt Veda, and I, 
I think she's my aunt now. She's the sweetest lady in the whole entire world. Can I have her? Can I? Can you share? No. Oh. I can share. I can share. She's got a lot of love. I can't have her, but you can share. I'll share. Okay. I don't. Want, I don't want her to yell at me for not sharing. <laughs> it seems like Hi, Veda. it's on brand for her if I'm not being <laughs> nice. I probably should watch the language on this episode too, because oh, she's no. bound it. Ah, she'll oh, have forgive I, have me. Have I been watching it? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know either. I'll tell the audio guy to take out any profanities. Just, just we'll beep this one for her. Okay. So we'll yeah, that was nuts, right? That was bananas. Holy tin pots. There was so much that I didn't know. I didn't know about the dog tags. Oh, my God. That blew my mind. Can you imagine as a parent looking at that every day and knowing why it's there? It's weird. It's so weird oh. that that was like, it was just a thing, you know, mm-hmm. like a backpack. You just mm-hmm. had your dog tag on. And I love that she said that tarp. so dark. Which is <laughs> still on brand with us. That is incredibly dark, incredibly fascinating. Yeah. So after, okay, the audio is as, I mean, I love it. I can't believe it. It's just so wonderful to me. But after she sent me this voicemail, I also got a text from her and it said, uh, so Pat is her sister's my other aunt, my aunt Pat. She says, Pat says Uncle Frank's mother lived on Summit and was blown outside in her bathtub, but I can't verify that, so I didn't mention it. <laughs> okay, listen, I I love you, but if you get sick of this podcast, uh, fall off a roller coaster, can your Aunt Veda come be the new co-host? I hope she will, because this is the cutest thing. I couldn't verify it, so I didn't mention I- it. <laughs> See, and she's got podcast ethics already. She's ready for this. She's fact checking. But when she sent me that, I was laughing so hard because I just pictured like (laughs) this little lady with a bath cap zipping through the front door in a bathtub, like (laughs) holding up one of those, you know, the long brush bath scrubbers. Mm -hmm. It's like, wee! So, yeah, let it just be said now that if if this uh, partnership should ever go south, Aunt Veda... You are invited. She's a lot nicer than I am. I promise you that. Oh, my God. You're very nice. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to just jump right into it. So it's 1960. Lucille Ball has filed for divorce from Desi Arnaz. The iconic image of Che Guevara was taken. And in what is one of the more surreal moments in the history of the Cold War, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev throws an adult tantrum when he learns that he cannot go to Disneyland. What? Yeah, he can't go. They won't let him. Let me hop in my time machine and go back in time and let him listen to my last episode. He doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go. Oh, he doesn't want to go? No, he wants to go. But if he listened to your episode, like if he was in the future, Mm. he probably would have been a little more chill about not going. Well, I mean, it didn't calm you down at all, so maybe not. (laughs) So he was pretty much getting smothered by security in America because, I mean, it's a Cold War. The last thing America needs is some citizen, like, coming and murdering him, you know? Sure, yeah. And then just, 
there we have it. It'll be a full-on war. So he's already getting pissed off by that. And uh, he made a stop at 20th Century Fox Studios during his visit. And right before, like, it's like the 24-hour news cycle. Like, they're covering it. It's a big deal. Like, everyone wants to know what's going on. Everyone's uncomfortable that he's in America in the first place. So he's in the studios, and there's tons of famous people. Marilyn Monroe's there. And he just kind of goes on this tirade that, like, is covered on with local news. And he, oh my. he's just like, what is it? Do you have rocket launching pads there? I don't know. Or is there an epidemic of cholera there or something? Or have gangsters taken a hold of the place that can destroy me? And I say, I would very much like to go to Disneyland. For me, <laughs> such a situation is inconceivable. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And he's just. The whole audience is just captivated. They just, they don't know what to say. And uh, after it's all said and done, they're like interviewing everyone. And there's like this clip of Marilyn Monroe where they're just asking her like what she thought. And she just, it's so funny because she's like, I thought it was interesting. And they're like clearly prying her to say something more. And she said, well, what part of his speech was interesting? And she just, you know, she bats her eyes. Well, it's all interesting. Oh, my. It was, it's super neat. Uh, it actually, there is a wonderful documentary called Cold War Roadshow. It's on Amazon Prime. You should check it out. It's got that clip on there. And just kind of give you an idea of, like, what America was dealing with, you know, around that time. Someone needs to send that poor man to Disney. He just wanted Disneyland. He, I mean... Is that so much to ask? No, I don't think no. so. It's like a, a make a wish foundation situation. Rude. <laughs> oh, bleep. We probably would not have a Cold War if we could have just given him a little bit of Disney. <laughs> Disney magic. And now I think that in this episode saying that Disney could have prevented the Cold War, but in a good way. Maybe that'll make up for the not as nice things we said the last episode. And they'll just leave us alone. We're not getting sued, Brianne. Can you tell I'm worried about getting sued? <laughs> so, I'm still waiting for Sugarland to call me. Ah, uh, tell him, Just go to Disneyland, Sugarland. <laughs> so with America flung into an era of civil defense drills, they're doing the duck and cover, and there's the mania of just stocking up on like everything. You know, in case that there's a nuclear fallout. America also saw a ramped up production of the Boeing B-47 Stratojet, which is the nickname. So the B-47 became the essential component to the U.S. Air Force Strategic Air Command, both as a nuclear bomber and a reconnaissance aircraft. Its advanced features included swept wings, jet engines and underwing pods, fuselage, gear and automated systems that reduced the standards crew size to three. So there's only three crew members for the B-47. Some of the B-47 uh, photographic reconnaissance from flyovers over the Soviet Union got detailed pictures of Soviet military and their facilities and also got intelligence about Soviet air defense systems and their inter intercontinental ballistic missile program. Basically, with all intents and purposes, the B-47 was pretty badass. Except for one grim statistic. You ready for this? Maybe. 
Over the operating history of the B-47, 203 aircrafts were lost in crashes, with 464 deaths. That is a very grim statistic. Yeah, that's uh, actually 10% of the total number of B-47s that were produced. Whoa. Yeah, it's a lot. I I was, like, looking through that timeline of, like, the B-47 disasters, and, like, especially between, like, the late 50s and 60s, and I was just like, this is so weird that this was just, like, par for the course. Huge flying hunk of metal had decent odd to crash. That, wow. That, that Those are insane numbers. Let's move on to the Little Rock disaster. So the B-47 in this event was set to travel to Barksdale Air Force Base in Shreveport, Louisiana from Little Rock Air Force Base. So the crew consisted of pilot Captain Herbert J. Aldrich, 37, co-pilot First Lieutenant Thomas J. Smoke, who was 26, and Navigator Lieutenant Colonel Reynolds S. Watson. So remember when I said that um, the B-47 was designed to have a crew of three? Yes. Well, this one actually had a fourth crew member. His name was Kenneth E. Brose. Did they put him in the trunk? Uh, essentially, he was. Oh no! <laughs> he was actually cra- crouched down on the floor of the jet. Wow. Yeah, it was really weird. I was talking to my husband about it, and I was like, "This is insane!" Like, you just crouched down on the floor, and he was like, "Yeah, whatever." It was the sixties. Same logic as kids riding the back of pickup trucks. I guess. I don't know. I don't know. So they took off at 5.55 in the morning from runway 24, and they were actually only in the air for about 10 minutes into the flight, and then it exploded over the Hillcrest neighborhood in Little Rock, Arkansas. Oh, no. Yeah. Why? What happened? What went wrong? Well, we will get to that um, (laughs) right now. So it basically killed three of the crew members and two civilians, and it injured a ton more people. I'm going to share with you two specific accounts of what happened, okay? So one is the surviving crew member, and then the other one's going to be a statement by the Strategic Air Command. So the only survivor, Thomas Smoke, said, The first time I knew something was wrong was when I noticed the horizon was at a crazy angle. Since Aldridge was flying the plane, it was him to correct the problem. He was a highly experienced pilot. He had been in World War II, the Korean War, and had been my teacher. All I could see was the back of his helmet. It appeared as though he was looking down. He could have been looking at charge, bombing ranges, or many other things. The plane was on autopilot. I yelled through our radio, Hey, what's going on? He didn't say anything. His response told me he was working on the problem. If I had been sitting next to him, I could have seen what's going on, but I was behind him. I knew we had to get out of this quick, but I never thought it was a serious problem. I never thought we were going to die. I just knew we were supposed to be going straight, and we weren't. I still didn't panic. I never thought we were going to crash. I was watching intently what the pilot was doing, and from where I was sitting, he was an expert. He was the professor. So he finished the account of the disaster by saying, I could feel the G-forces as he was handling the controls. In that process, the airplane either was overstressed and broke apart because we were so heavy, or simply it just exploded. I don't know what happened. It happened so fast. 
Oh my gosh. Like too heavy as in there was an extra crew member and shouldn't have been? I'm going to ex- actually explain that to you here okay. in two seconds. I'll hold Be- my horses. No, you're fine. Because <laughs> I had a lot of questions because, I mean, I it, it's hard to wrap your brain around. So from the Strategic Air Command, um, their statement, and it's super edited down, but basically it says a B-47 was climbing after takeoff in VFR weather. There had been an extended period of no interphone communication, during which the co-pilot had been concentrating on receiving nose arc traffic. At about 15,000 feet, the co-pilot suddenly realized that the aircraft was in a very steep left bank, that the nose was well below the horizon, and that the airspeed was excessive. He pulled the throttles to idle, punched the interphone button, and shouted at the aircraft commander. Almost immediately, the nose came up, the wings leveled, and the aircraft uh, disintegrated. Oh my god. What a word, disintegrated. Yeah, that's ominous. So yeah, one of the perks of being married to a pilot is uh, my aviation ineptitude. I can come to him and he can tell me what the f*** is going on. I don't think you have introduced your husband's job before now. So my husband is a helicopter pilot and it's scary and it gives me anxiety every time he flies i feel like he could be a guest speaker at some point i he would be a really i should have had him guest speak on this one i'm gonna try to uh summarize how he explained this to me (laughs) luckily he wrote down some notes so my husband um he was explaining some of the way some of this stuff works and so he was saying that, like, when Smoke was talking about the aircraft being, like, overstressed to the point that the a- aircraft was too heavy, like you were asking before, it basically could have referred to, and this is how he said it, an increase of weight and stress on the aircraft due to gravina- gravitational force equivalent, or commonly known as G-force. So a, a force of 1G is equivalent to the aircraft's mass multiplied by the force of gravity so a force of even two g's essentially doubles the weight of an object and then three g's triples the weight of the object and so forth i actually learned a bunch about that doing research on the last episode with roller coasters and stuff yeah so i i had no idea what this was until tonight so basically Due to the sudden change of the aircraft momentum when transitioning from a high-speed nosedive to an aircraft being wing level relative with the horizon, would have increased the amount of apparent weight on the aircraft, similar to the weight increase he would feel, here you go, Brianne, (laughs) when on a roller coaster that is in a downward motion and suddenly swoops upward. See? Like a roller coaster, but at much more extreme rate. So, which would have stressed the aircraft structure to a level that the hardware keeping the aircraft together probably could not withstand. I had never even thought about the fact that, you know, if it's like, I I don't know what I'm talking about, but I never even thought about the fact that if it's like with people, you know, the G-force is the weight multiplied and everything, that it's the same with the machinery. Right. They just, it can't handle it. Yeah. So when they were talking about VFR and aviation, that actually refers to visual flight rules. So this is a set amount of in-flight visibility and cloud clearance a pilot must maintain determined by the type of airspace the pilot is operating in. 
So when operating an aircraft that is solely certified to operate VFR, maintaining visibility and cloud clearance is absolute paramount as a loss of visibility with the ground and horizon could result in disorientation as well as an increased chance of colliding with an object hidden by poor visibility. Wow. Scary stuff. I remember we were watching um, Mickey's Playhouse, whatever, you know what I'm talking about on Disney Junior. Yeah, Uh, Clubhouse. Yeah, but there's an episode where Mickey Mouse is flying and he's just like tooting along in the clouds and Ava was my oldest daughter's watching it and I remember my husband walking in like, that's dangerous. <laughs> Don't do that ever. Oh, uh, yeah. You've got a whole whole experience with air safety with your husband, I'm sure. Mine, in addition to being <laughs> our audio guy, is also an RN. So we have our whole. And he is busy as hell right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The kids know a lot of weird safety facts. <laughs> So the SAC report concluded that in the cockpit section, which had separated intact from the rest of the aircraft, the co-pilot tried to eject, but the clamshell initiator pin had not been removed. The co-pilot then unfastened his seatbelt. The canopy blew off at about 10,000 feet. The unconscious unconscious co-pilot was thrown out about 4,000 feet Mm -hmm. and his parachute opened automatically. The aircraft commander ejected at 2,000 feet, but his parachute had been fused by fire and he died upon impact. Oh, no. The fourth man was found near the wreckage and did not survive. And the navigator was killed in his position. So the guy with the parachute lived and is the one telling the story about... Yeah, the co-pilot, ...what happened up Mm -hmm. there. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, let's talk about this dude for a little bit. Because he's got a really interesting story. Okay. So, Thomas Smokes, his survival is, I mean... It's nothing short of a miracle. It's crazy. He said that morning that he was supposed to fly, he instinctively picked one of two flight suits he had. So he had two different ones. One was like just a kind of like thin nylon suit that, you know, most pilots wore just because it was comfortable. And then there was another one that was a little more bulky, a little more uncomfortable that was flame resistant. And for some reason, even though he didn't normally wear it, That's the one he picked. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. So as he was ejected from the B-47, a nurse name, and I still haven't figured out how to pronounce this, and maybe you can help me. It's J-I-M-M-Y-E. Jimmy? Jimmy? I don't know. Maybe it's just Jimmy. I don't know. We're just going to say Jimmy Lee Holman. I think they put E's at the end of weird stuff back then a lot. Yeah, I'm just going to say Jimmy Lee. I'm sorry Yeah, <laughs> to the family of Jimmy Lee if I'm saying it wrong. But basically, she was having her morning coffee and she just, she, like everybody else in town, just heard this huge explosion. So her and her husband, Oliver, raced outside. Um, they lived on the corner of Kavanaugh and Martin Street. And they just see, like, all this debris falling from the sky. And a man with an orange and white parachute that the parachute's just burn to shreds. They just see him falling towards her, like an insane speed. Oh. Uh, she is quoted like in newspapers saying that, you know, she basically fell to her knees and she was just screaming, please help break his fall. Oh Lord. Like just was praying over and over. So 
in front of their house, they have just the concrete driveway. And then on each side, they have two identical trees. The summer before, her and her husband had actually talked about maybe removing them, but was like, yeah, we'll just let it be. So as Smokes is coming down, like super fast, his parachute snagged on the top of both of those trees. Kind of Mm. like, um, you know, it just both sides like kept him from crashing into the ground. That is crazy. Mm -hmm. So she basically tended to him um, until the medics could take him to the hospital. Uh, I paid for my first article during research because of this, just because the title was awesome. It said, a special patient fell from the sky into her care. And it was actually um, a tribute to her as she, from when she passed. Oh. So Smoke said that she had said, I was given a son from out of heaven. Um, they had a wonderful relationship for 40 odd years. And he said that she was a loving, witty mother to him. Oh, my gosh. I love that. I, I am such a sucker for, you know, disaster, terrible situations, stayed in touch after became a part of each other's live stories. 40 years. It was a long I time. I love that. I love it, too. So besides the three airmen that died, there was two other civilian victims um, that lost their life, uh, Miss Lewis Clark and James Leroy Hollibaugh. So a significant part of the plane actually crashed into the small home of Miss Clark, who she was alone in her home at 211 Colonial Court in Hillcrest, and that was about two miles from the state capitol. Mrs. Clark was trapped and she tragically perished in the flames. It was reported that the impact knocked down the brick veneer of the house and the rear was in shambles with steaming, twisted pieces of wreckage covering much of the backyard. Oh, my gosh. I can't even I can't even imagine. So Jimmy Hullabo was the adopted son of Mrs. Agnes Nelson Grove. Um, he was pulled from the debris at 1920 Maryland Avenue. Mrs. Grove escaped with burns on her feet and some abrasions, but tragically, Jimmy did not survive. Nothing was left of their home except the foundation. Like the whole house was gone. Um, and it was about 25 yards from this. There's a huge crater that the wreckage dug. Uh, Aunt Veda was talking about that a little bit, like going to see that big crater. So debris and damage stretched pretty much far across the city. And there was a clear line of debris and destruction that could be seen from Alsop Park, where the nose of the aircraft was found all the way down to the intersection of Summit Street and Maryland Avenue. And I actually like mapped this out today. And it was like, just it was like 1.7, just under two miles as the crow flies of just a straight line of all the wreckage and debris. So, I mean, it was pretty disastrous. So that crater was actually like, I mean, everyone visited. It was like the thing the town did, you know, because it was just the size of it was insane. 116 homes were damaged. Uh, Some of them were completely destroyed by fires. And there was also a church that was destroyed too. Additionally, amongst the fallout, there was a ton of looting. Of course. Yeah, of course. Stacy's Grocery Store on West 7th and Battery and the Safeway Store on Battery Street had reported looting within minutes of the crash. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Come yeah. on. It's like, get a grip. Like, wait, wait a couple of days at least. What are you looting? 
Yeah. What are, I mean. I don't get it. I don't know. I don't either. So they put guards on the scene to stop that like pretty immediately. But after that, it like went super downhill. And this is like, uh, this is bad. A briefcase belonging to one of the crew members was found close to the deceased airman um, that was at the Pulaski Heights Junior High in the front yard. And there was a lot of, I'm not going to get into the graphic nature of it, but it was, it was pretty bad. There was a lot of people talking about, you know, what had happened to him. But the article that ran in their newspaper the next day said, Youngsters to whom the tragedy was more of an adventure plucked souvenirs from the body of one of the airmen before someone covered it with a sheet. Shut the front door from the body. I just, I don't know. I have things to say, but none of them are nice, so I'm not going to say them. I don't know. A part of me is like, kids, they don't know better, but they should. From the body? I mean, come on. But then I wonder how much too, because, you know, you're trying to sell newspapers at that time. Like, mm. was it really That's from the pretty... body or was it around the body or, you know what I mean? That's pretty specific. I, uh, My three-year-old wouldn't do that. That's, uh. I think part of me is in denial that like it just. I mean, like once the bodies are gone, kids going back and getting souvenirs from the wreckage. Sure. I mean, that's morbid, but you know, here we are making this podcast. So who am I to say (laughs) anything? But from the bodies, come on. I don't really think there's any age of kid. Yeah, it was, it was a big deal. Um, the looting just of everything of the stores of the things around the body. Uh, there's another article that said, that the looting of the accident site was actually the only major problem experienced by the crash investigation team as people took valuable parts and pieces that could have been helpful with the investigation. Mm. I hate that. Yeah. It's sad. It is really sad. But it's like, I don't know. You're in a time where there's no news and stuff like you got radio. Would you know any better? I mean, this is kind of... No, not with that. I mean, the I, I've got no excuse for the looting directly from the bodies thing, but things that wouldn't preserve the scene, no. I mean, no. I think knowing better as far as that is definitely a more modern thing. Right. The Air Force basically put out a plea to the citizens to refrain from collecting uh, the crash items as souvenirs. Yeah. It's like, just Good stop. job, guys. We gotta, we gotta investigate. Like, just chill. I actually saw, I was kind of doing some digging in some Facebook groups and I saw this one guy was like, yeah, I found a piece of the parachute and I kept it. I'm supposed to put it on the curb for the investigators, but I kept it. It Oh my God. They asked people to put things on the curb. Mm -hmm. But he was really happy and really proud. I was like, (sighs) so defiant still. Just the curb things are really interesting detail though. Yeah. Uh, in the end, the Air Force reported that the B-47 was worth $1.87 million, and the total damage on the ground came to $2.15 million. I wonder what that would be now. I have no idea. I should have looked that up. But yeah, that's the B-47 crash in Little Rock that oh, my aunts my were holding gosh. out on me. They really were. I can't imagine. Are they holding out anything else? Have you asked them? 
They gave me a laundry list of disasters to cover, but I'm sure there's 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 more. There has to be. Wow. You need to ask your family. I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna end this podcast in a minute and send them an email at two in the morning. Well, hopefully, like, the people that are listening, too, like, maybe they can think or mm-hmm. ask their family. Ask your family. Absolutely. Let us we know. We want to know everything. We got, we want the details. Have them call us. Yes. I like the, make, I like the interviews. Make your family our family. I have already taken Melanie's aunt. She thinks she's sharing, but it's not really how. This is going to work. I'm getting fired for my ums in this podcast. (laughs) No, your ums haven't been bad at all. Aunt Veda's the best. Your ums are nothing compared to the ums in my discarded first dress rehearsal. We are getting better. It's just going to get better and better and better. The nerves. People don't know this is actually, people don't know this is actually our fifth episode. Oh my gosh. I swear the nerves, they get to us. Mm -hmm. Well, me especially. I say us because I'm trying to, you know, scoot some of the blame off me. (laughs) Well, I'm just nervous about every little sound this microphone might possibly hear. We breathe heavy. We do so many things. I do so many things. I have heard for days to weeks from my husband about all the things that we both do. And I can tell you, I do more things. (laughs) Well, fortunately, there's a lot of disasters, so we will have a lot of practice. And you know what? It'll be perfect one day or close to it. Mm, Yeah, like next week. Yeah, I can't wait. I can't either. All right. Can't wait to be perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll see you next week then. Well, I will see you next week. I can't wait to hear what you're going to tell me about then. All right. Bye, Brianne. Bye. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to support us further, you can find us at patreon.com slash marksafepodcast. There's a bunch of goodies on there, including shout outs, final stickers, and bonus content. You can also catch us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at marksafepodcast. Huge thanks to Joshua Hooper for our amazing podcast cover art, and also to Dusty Bow and Brandon for our incredible music intro. And thank you, our listeners, for sharing and subscribing. We hope you stay safe. See you later, my friends.